The business of culture, the culture of business, media and technology, markets and politics, startups, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. If you begin to contemplate an industry the way an investor will, you focus on the model. At the end of the day, the model's got to be right or else eventually the business will fail. So I was focused from day one on figuring out a new model for an industry that, in my view, was deeply in need of some rethinking when it came to, to business models. Here with The Education of John Kelly, an editor at Vanity Fair, Bloomberg Business Week, and The New York Times who pivoted to the world of private equity and emerged as co-founder of Puck News, a media startup that's breaking news, making waves, and winning logins. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. A shout out to our listeners on WVTF, Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can message me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining us from Chelsea in Manhattan is John Kelly. He's the founder and editor-in-chief, co-founder and editor-in-chief of Puck, which is a new media company focused on the intersection of Washington, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. How are you, sir? I'm good, Robin. It's a pleasure to be on your show. I listen to the Powers That Be pod, which uh, you and Peter Hamby often do on Mondays. I read your newsletter. I read the various products that come out of Puck. And I had to ask myself, like, I worked with John Kelly a good 11, 12 years ago, you were one of the founding editors of the relaunched Bloomberg Business Week, my magazine Business Week, which was acquired by Bloomberg. You were running some of the lifestyle back of the book stuff. And then I remember you decamped for the New York Times and maybe went back to Vanity Fair Digital. Next thing I know, there's all this you know, Silicon Alley published stuff about you going off to launch this media startup. And then I'm personally consuming the stuff voraciously from bylines like Dylan Byers, Matt Bellany, Julia Yaffe, whose byline has been indispensable during the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And suddenly, next thing I know is you're getting profiled in The New Yorker. So my question to you, sir, when did that all start? When did you agree to go to the fortress of solitude and re-educate yourself and move away from being just a, an editor collecting a salary at a big organization like The New York Times at Bloomberg and building something from scratch? Well, um, What's the the line from Hemingway that uh, you know bankruptcy happens uh, over a long time and then all at once, uh, which you know is used to I think describe how change works. It was a gradual process that I think became quite immediate for me. I was at the New York Times, as you say, for a number of years around the time when the uh, company was sort of reconstituting itself around right. the Innovation Report and the new leadership was coming in, and I had a number of ideas that started to. to populate my brain around that time about the power of influential journalists um, and the new means of distribution. And it manifested itself in a, in a business that I began pitching called The Hive, which uh, I ended up doing as a collaboration through Vanity Fair, as you mentioned, with Condé Nast. And The Hive was, was a, a pretty immediate success. And, and just, to, just to get in business required about a year of planning and pitching. It was actually 
was easier, I, I imagine. I don't mean this glibly, but it, you know, getting the hive funded at Condé Nast at that moment was like passing Obamacare. Well, time, time out. I want to I want to explain this for our listeners who are kind of not in the Manhattan set that didn't grow up with this. Condé Nast was the luxury magazine publisher, GQ, Vanity Fair. You know, you you think about Anna Winter at Vogue and everything. And I just remember when I entered the industry in the year two thousand. There was a tremendous amount of envy. I'd read the Heller Romana Clay called Slab Rat, the black car service, the unbelievable dining room that you had at that new Times Square location. That was very top of market where the magazines had a thud factor. They were so full with cologne ads and fashion ads and everything. And it could cross subsidize journalistic endeavors such as those of Vanity Fair, you know, paying amazing writers something like two, two dollars and fifty cents a word, or the New Yorker. And a lot of that has since dissipated and gone digital. And I can't imagine you going back and pitching something like that that's in the throes of disruption and saying, you guys need to double down on being digital natives. Well, you were right that the, the, the margin in print was extraordinary, especially for those top of market titles. And you know these were cultural products. So I was very focused on seeing the, the, the early stages of a, a couple of big trends. Sure. One was that journalists, in my mind, were influencers. They were you know underpriced in the market. They were in an information sphere that is the same one that politicians and private equity moguls consume as well. They just they, they approach from a different uh, vantage point. I also could see that it, this was all moving to a direct-to-consumer model, so advertising was going to um, shape-shift in the market. And uh, I, also, it, this is, you know, I, I don't think the apple had fallen on my head on, on this point yet, but but it was clear that you know, we, we refer to newsletters uh, as a certain kind of product, but it's really just a, de- a, a delivery mechanism. But it was clear to me that newsletters or in-email delivery was going to become the closest thing we had seen to the magazine page, the Condé Nast magazine page of the 90s that, that we'd see in my you know, professional lifetime. So I was trying to pitch a upscale luxury product that would make sense to, to help reinvent Vanity Fair. It took a long time and they went for it. And so this process, to your original point, Robin, was one that forced me to confront what I did not know. And I was actually very, very embarrassed by um, the gaps in my knowledge as just an editor. You know, here I was trying to pitch a business, and I didn't understand how to read a P and L. I didn't know what a balance sheet was. There's so much you didn't know. And High was really successful, and yet I didn't own it, so I, I couldn't control it. And and we were a small, growing thing inside of a, an enormous company that was going through its own turbulent times. So I, at some point, I felt that I wanted to to take a bigger step to, to, to be an entrepreneur, to truly start from scratch, because when you, when you open up a new line of business at a big company, you're really just creating a shingle. And that I wanted to lean into these new trends. I wanted to lean into subscription. I wanted to lean into the creator economy. And to do that, I needed to essentially recognize and really confront what I didn't know. And so I went into TPG, which is a colossal private equity company with $140 billion in assets under management. And I became an entrepreneur in residence. So I began to advise them on you know certain media assets in their portfolio. They began to help me um, incubate this business. And I saw the world with fresh eyes. I mean, I just absolutely did. And I saw it as, you know, I, I don't want to say the executive view, but the financial view of what was going on in media. And it totally recast to me what was probable, what was possible, and w- what I should be doing. So I was really, um, it, it, was a, it was a transformational moment for me. And I think, among other things, it made me a, a colossally better editor because um, I saw a, a, a view of the world that journalists really never see. Couldn't you have done a Knight Badgett or gotten an MBA or something like that? I mean, I can't imagine walking It's not in. the same thing. It's not the same thing 
when as when you are in a room uh when you know i'm not disparaging anyone's experience but getting an mba is not the same as being in um an ic meeting or uh when you're really looking at deal flow to to really talk with bankers about what the appropriate CAC to LTV or you know customer acquisition cost to lifetime value ratio should be of a company of a certain size. Okay, okay, okay time on, time on. I can't, value. I can't imagine walking into a, I don't know, not not Predators Ball or whatever they call it back in the day, and with this vulnerability saying I don't know this stuff, but you need me as an advisor and I need you, and you had somebody who said, you know what, kid, I'm going to give you a shot. I had yes, I did, and I and I had a very senior person uh, who was the founder and co CEO of the firm, Jim Coulter, who had blessed us and was part of Puck from the earliest earliest days. Adam Mendelson, who uh, worked on the some media businesses, Andy Doyle, and many others. Paul Farber. Uh, I'm not trying to give a, an Academy Award speech here, but there were a lot of people who I think believed that I had some creative talent and that I had a real eagerness to learn. You know, if if I if anyone else who's listening to this wants to follow the path I took. Uh, I'd say the only um, the only advice I could I could offer is be prepared to to work your tail off and show your uh, alacrity for wanting to understand this new world. I, I think that it was clear in the early meetings that there were, that I was speaking a different language, obviously, and that's still largely true in many cases that, that I can speak a, a different language. But I knew how important it was to have credibility in their lexicon. And I needed to see the world the way they did. And it, it made me, um, it, you know, as I mentioned a moment ago, it made me such a better editor in, in every conceivable way. John, I distinctly remember when you and I briefly had crossed paths at Bloomberg Business Week. We're in the Bloomberg Death Star, the mothership on 731 <laughs> Lexington Avenue. Occasionally, you and I would go up for a company-sanctioned coffee and bag of chips right in the Sky Lobby. And there was this conversation, you might not remember it, you and I are watching all the Effectively, the dinosaurs go up and down the escalators. This was a "this is your life" for. You're making me sound terrible, but okay. No, but sure. this is let's just just say you know two two guys. You're you're a bit younger than I am, but we're talking about it like oh my gosh, that person is here. That this place was not a halfway house between kind of journalism people who had ink stained wretches from the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the New York Times, and everything who weren't quite ready to retire or go into public relations, and they get some sort of sinecure, not really, at at Bloomberg News. And we're just going back and forth, and this part of you just saying, like, what is he doing here? What is he doing here? And we're just two kids that didn't realize it, but there was supposed to be protection with one of the wealthiest people on the planet. Business Week was a rounding error for him, and you could theoretically innovate in a world like that. They are looking, I mean, there was a TV studio on site. There was a radio studio on site. You had a great expense account, and you could travel first class to places. There was security in that, and there was some security before it exploded and did really well again in the New York Times and, and in a past life in Condé Nast, and yet you were ready to just walk away from all that. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I became uh, – I, actually, I realized when I, when I officially became an entrepreneur and when I, I left TBG to, to raise capital for Puck Series A with my partners, I, it sort of dawned on me that, um, that I'd had this – character trait all along in my life. I, I am not dispositionally allied with the sort of worldview that you're painting there. Um, I like to hustle. I like to do things. I, I like to um, I like to create new things. I, I like to challenge myself. I'm not somebody who really 
gets excited about going to a business conference in Seoul and flying in the bulkhead to to do that. And um, I, you know, it's also true because I, I I don't remember that particular coffee, but I certainly remember roaming the halls of Seven Thirty One with you. And I think if I felt anything there, and I certainly felt it at various points in my career at the Times and even at Vanity Fair when I was when I was a kid starting out there, everyone was older. The, the industry was older, and it was ending. And I loved it. But I realized and I felt a certain responsibility, but just a, a certain selfishness that I had to figure this out with partners because the people who were uh, who were in charge weren't interested in figuring out the new thing. They were interested in managing decline. And mm-hmm. it, it, the world was either going to be over by the time I got senior enough to be considered for the big jobs. And by that point, the big jobs were going to be all about managing decline themselves. So I, I really, uh, you know, part of the hive to me that that f- first foray into business building was about recognizing that. I had to go off script and and be a builder. And you know, we're just in the earliest stages with Puck. We've been in market for 15 months. There's so much that we that we want to do, um, and, and we're just scratching the surface of our potential here. But we did this in part for a couple of reasons. You know, um, you you haven't mentioned yet one of the most innovative details of the company is that we treat we don't we don't just view journalists as influencers. We we treat them like they are the core of the business. They're not a cost on our. How were you not? Driver. How were you not laughed out of kind of pitch book meetings and doing this? Because in our no, experience, no, no, I wasn't. No, because maybe I'll, it's I'll a learned. Here's the deal. It's the maybe it's a learned helplessness. But you and I, in our entire careers, we're just inured to believe that journalists are loss leaders. And had you set up, had you set up an office outside the New York Times, and any great person who took a buyout, and you did the thought experiment of just hiring every great journalist that was remaindered by the New York Times or Vanity Fair or the Wall Street Journal, could you have made a great business model out of it? Doubtful. Well, that was, okay, so there are a couple things here to, to unpack. One, I think that when I was at the Times, I realized, oh, okay, the, the, the top 5% of this place is a much better business than the whole 100%, right? That, that was basically what the business model of Vanity Fair was. Just, just get the top and, and, and package it and, and make scarcity your friend. When I was inside TPG, it was very, very clear to me that the story, the economic story of our time is business model innovation. Whether you agree with the premise of these companies or not, businesses like Uber or Airbnb or Spotify have revolutionized commerce because they have found innovative new ways to build their platforms, right? The lack of fixed costs with Airbnb and Uber, the partnership and um, sort of collaborative royalty experience from Spotify. If you begin to contemplate an industry the way an investor will, you focus on the model. At the end of the day, the model's got to be right or else eventually the business will fail. So I was focused from day one on figuring out a new model for an industry that, in my view, was deeply in need of some rethinking when it came to, to business models. So actually, to, to the opposite of your, uh, of your supposition, the model was, you know, two questions came up when we were pitching the business. Tell us why the model will work and can you get talent? And my point always was, Elite journalists, the best, are actually like the most competitive people you'll ever meet in your life. And they want to be, many of them want to be placed in opportunities where they can earn as much as their talent allows them and where they can be stars. And we're trying to, to build a business that puts them at the center of that economic engine. And if you build it, they will come. And, and I was really, uh, I had a ton of conviction from the earliest days that, you know, if we got the model right, that the, the, the talent that we wanted to work with, would be, they'd be fantastic and they'd be more motivated than ever. And uh, I should say, you know, we're only, we're still skimming the surface of, of what business model innovation looks like in our industry. But I think that the early signs are really, really powerful. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to John Kelly. He's co-founder and editor-in-chief of Puck. 
It's a very buzzworthy new media company focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. You've scored some great trophy bylines, stuff that's become must-reads for me. Uh, Dylan Byers, who covers CNN, I think, better than people inside CNN cover CNN. Uh, <laughs> you know, Bill Cohen, obviously, the established uh, Wall Street writer. He's covered various scandals in and out of New York and Hollywood and Duke Lacrosse and everything. One of my favorite authors, bar none. You have Julia Yaffe, who's gotten coverage on her own as being one of the best bylines out there on this Russian incursion into Ukraine. And Matt Bellany, someone who I didn't know before. I think he was an entertainment attorney. He's got excellent, very highly listened to pod and scoops left and right. Now, what I want to understand is the pitch to people. I mean, I, I don't want to be cliche and ask you for an elevator pitch, but I guess other people have attempted to lock up. I'm just thinking about Fusion back in the day, hiring the likes of Felix Salmon mm -hmm. and others and influential people and offering them great advances to do it. Certainly, there has to be something on the back end. There has to be a significant subscription optionality to come in to justify the investors fronting you all this money for advanced salaries. Well, I wouldn't call it fronting. These are these are equity investments. So they are, yeah. they're uh, owners of our company as well. You know, we'll take Matt for uh, a moment. Matt was, he was an entertainment attorney and he was the editor of The Hollywood Reporter. And he had a, in Hollywood, just a profile par excellence. I mean, he was, he's just such a um, bard of the industry. And he was exactly the sort of person that I knew, you know, I, I dreamed of working with creatively. He was at the top of his game and he already, he'd kind of gotten that era of his career out of his system. You know, um, I say to our partners, we don't want to compete with people who are, contemplating a job between Puck or the New York Times, we want people who've gotten the New York Times out of their system. You know, mm. when I was a, a kid working at Vanity Fair, you know, we hired Brian Burrow, you know, after he worked at the Wall Street Journal for years and, and written Barbarians at the Gate. That was the profile of writer. Stars. Like true, you know, first name only stars. He was Brian. And that's what I wanted Puck to be you know, a, a place of fewer and brighter stars. And, you know, n not to get like s sentimental or, or daft, but part of what you create when you m make a media company is is a unique and intimate experience. I want to make sure that people get to know Matt the way I do. His remarkable newsletter, What I'm Hearing, came about because when we first began working together, we'd get on Zooms, and this was still the height of the pandemic, and he would talk about what he was hearing around town. And I said, you have to bottle this. Like, this is the product. Like, the product is you. You know, that the product is, is you explaining your, the inbound, you know, the, the text you're getting from producers, executives, CEOs, agents, publicists. And, you know, figure out which are the ones you want to turn into stories of various lengths and which are the ones you just want to itemize and make this the essential reading material, the, the essays, the tip sheets, the reportage, all of it for people who, who work in this business and also people like – like you, Robin, you know, people who, who who don't work in Hollywood, but are transfixed by the joint. And, and Matt makes it accessible in a way that really, I, I think no one else can. And he's a um, he's a marvel of a man, just a, a, a total, total one off. And Puck is a great place for talent. You know, we, we believe, you know, from an industry perspective that we become a barbell where over the last number of years, the industry had uh, on one side was just enormous in, in enlarging places like the CNN and the New York Times and the Washington Post that offer a ton of stability, but not a, a much not as much creative opportunity. And then on the other side, a, a flourishing of DIY opportunities like Substack or Patreon. But the middle, which used to be what I would think of as the magazine industry, was just depopulated. It so had, let me let me explain it. this yeah. for our listeners who are not in that kind of glitterati. But Substack and these other things that it's it's totally eat what you kill. It's totally going off 
you know, you're not getting the back office, you're not getting HR, you're not getting the 35 layers of copy editors hounding you every evening at the New York Times and others, or that infrastructure of a Bloomberg Business Week. But it's totally out there. If your byline can stand on its own, love him or hate him, Glenn Greenwald, you know, the late Grant Wall, who perished in Cutter, people whose bylines could really stand on their own. That must have been a great tell to you that the fact that star personalities at publications could decamp and more than make a living on their own. Well, you know, we you could see it coming inevitably. And I think for a lot of people, the good news of this new era of media is that there are a lot of winners and a lot of options and more options than journalists have had before or in a long time, at least. Um, I think for a lot of people's uh, Substack or Patreon uh, is a gateway drug towards entrepreneurship, that it's an opportunity to test out a thesis and see if it's successful. And in fact, if it really is successful, they, they usually will want to mushroom it into, into something larger. Uh, can't mention Grant without explaining how I got to know him a little bit. Um, what a wonderful guy and what a tragic loss that is for all of us. He was just a, a, just a great man. Um, rest in peace. We believed that this was the first inning of the disruption. And we believe that brands mattered, that you could offer journalists the best of the old world, those resources that you're talking about, editing, design, the marketing, finance, and also the best of the new world, the new distribution, not having to um, carry forth the sort of uh, obligations of an institution. And also, like, it's pretty clear that one of the great trends in media, it's this notion that we're all moving towards a kind of transparency, a kind of authenticity. One hokey way that we sum it up here is we say that journalism is, is gone farm to table. It's not just <laughs> enough. It, it, but seriously, it's not just enough to order the, the, the chicken on the menu. You have to know it's the Amish chicken from Lancaster County that was farm raised <laughs> by by the young boys. And, and, and frankly, you expect the chef to come to the table and talk to you right, about it. Right. And so with someone like Matt or Dylan or Julia or some of my amazing colleagues that you mentioned before – their readers want to know them. They don't want them to write stuffy stories in an institutional voice. They want them to write in their voice. They want them to break the fourth wall. But We're it takes a special kind of media star to be wanted known intimately in conference calls by the readers, right? If it's a if it's a very organic, genuine trade-off. You have a lot of fanboys and fangirls out there who are C-level executives. You have, you know, the sure. likes of Kara Swisher and private equity executives and everybody listening to your podcast, reading the various newsletters. Things that must be read. If you're going to know anything about CNN, you have to read Dylan Byers. If you're going to know anything about Hollywood and the streaming wars or what happened with Bob Chapek, mm -hmm. you have to listen and le read Matt Bellany. And that then begets its own ecosystem, a kind of a, a, a club, uh, almost a clubhouse type thing going on. I, I, I can't imagine that you pictured, you gamed out these second order effects. We were trying to create a club. There is no doubt about it. Um, the concept of a club, but without getting too particular here, is the a club is the essential subscription business. And if you're creating a, a media company that is geared towards, yes, we were initially geared towards the top of the pyramid, although as we scale, we are focused increasingly on ensuring that Puck is delightful for people in the concentric circles around the elite. But as we do so, we recognize that these are people who already have extraordinary access to information. We're not competing with the New York Times because our audience already reads the New York Times. We're trying to, to cater to the last mile of the news that they don't already know. And that's why we wanted to work with insider journalists who are in the room, for lack of a better expression, and who see the world differently. And I think that part of, you know, um, I hope that part of my experience in private equity helps shape a bit of this too. You know, one of the things I always found so interesting, uh, we glancingly mentioned this earlier, but I think of sort of information totem, right? That any given news story 
has levels of perception that, that go between academics, journalists, people in government, and people in finance, where as you keep pulling back, you realize that the conversation changes. So the conversation that you might have about Airbnb inside the New York Times is very different than the conversation you'd have about Airbnb inside of TBG, right? Mm. You're just talking about it totally, totally differently. And I think that in, in one of the bias of journalists, excuse me, is that um, they often in their minds that they they write either for other journalists or for the, what they perceive to be a kind of broad-based audience. And I think that we actually felt that people in the uh, in the expert level classes, you know, were really underserved. There was a, a lack of content that for their interest level. And we also recognized too, uh, and, and my colleague Tina Wen made a great point about this in that New York article that you nicely mentioned before, that my God. Wouldn't you want to know what the people at the very top of the totem pole are reading? You know, Tina said that she was thrilled that her her sister gets to read the same work that Warren Buffett is reading uh, and that provides, you know, ostensible value to him. And I, I think that just any news consumer, whether they're intimately focused on the news or, or casual, would insatiably want to know what the conversation is at the very, very top. That actually seems like that's a, a pretty powerful democratic tool. And without getting highfalutin, I think that's that's part of the um, the plot that we're trying to reveal here at Puck. Full disclosure, do stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe and rave about us, is fullderadio.com. Special shout out to our radio listeners. You can catch us on WVTF's Radio IQ, the NPR member station across the great Commonwealth. We are down in Asheville, North Carolina on WPVM. We are out in Ventura County, California on KPPQLP. Holler. If you too would like to have us on your air, of course, my DMs are always open. If you're just joining us, we are talking to John Kelly, co-founder and editor-in-chief of Puck, which is the new media company getting all sorts of buzz in Hollywood and Silicon Valley and Washington. John, in the few minutes we have left, what happened to some of the incumbents who were supposed to suddenly, you know, digital native incumbents who were supposed to rock it? I'm thinking about BuzzFeed. I remember when that term sheet and that venture package leaked. I'm thinking about Recode and some of the others that came out with, you know, breathless mission statements and talents. I think John Heileman recently had to shutter his own startup. I mean, there's certainly a lot of login fatigue right now. You're seeing it with Netflix. You guys have covered this, Netflix, HBO Max. New York Times wants to be the essential login for your entire life. But what happened to the other players? Fusion, Quartz, BuzzFeed, Recode, Vox. I mean, Vox hasn't had an exit yet. Axios has. It raised a lot of money and it sold out. But you're you're not convinced that buyout firms or strategic targets are exactly clamoring to buy these companies out. You know, I think a couple of things happened here. First of all, you know, there's a sort of line from Tolstoy about how uh, you know unhappy exits for for digital media companies are all unhappy in their own in their own different <laughs> way. And um, right. uh, but I think that broadly speaking. Uh, there have been actually a lot more successes in there than you might recognize, and and I think Vox is a, is a huge, huge success. It's just looking for the right exit. They've got a ton of cash, and they make smart decisions. Jim Bankoff, the guy who runs the company, is, is a, a real um, uh, envy uh, in the industry. But a, a couple of big things happened. These companies were founded when the consumer internet was really expanding, and mobile was expanding, and, 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 and a younger generation was beginning to enter their news-consuming years, and it was considered religion that the business model, as the previous one had been, was going to be um, advertising. And, and, and it was uh, it was believed that CPMs, the cost per thousand eyeballs, was going to go up. Guess what? It turns out it went down. 
So as a result, all the, the size of these companies and the sheer scale of them no longer mattered. And so, and, and and the more you you know in media, the more you're for everyone, the more you're for no one. So I think that one of the sort of tragedies of, of BuzzFeed was that, and, and you could probably put Vice in this category too. They were millennium millennial based media companies that said that they were making great work for an enormous audience. But I can tell you, Robin, you know. We are close to the same age. I can't remember one BuzzFeed story or Vice story I read from the time. The only stories I remember were hearing that the company was reaching 150 million people a month, right? So I think that the industry lost the script there a little bit. I think that broadly speaking, companies that were focused on either pure play digital advertising or large play digital advertising went through some rough patches. Because you have to remember, too, that ad teams are not so different from newsrooms in the sense that the sellers have specific targets, you know? If you're a congressional reporter, you're writing about Congress. If you're an auto salesperson for a company, what happens when Ford decides they're not going to market this quarter? Which everybody is experiencing right now, even at the NPR level. That, that, sure. That codependency with advertising has not been fully broken. There are people that have toggled back and forth between it. I'm thinking about Insider and others who have relied on it Absolutely. and decided to go defiantly you know, subscriber based, and it's it's tortured the entire industry. So the thing that you um, you mentioned Axios in your in your litany of companies, and, and obviously they had an exit for five hundred and fifty million dollars. So I think they've done they've done pretty well. Sure, um, they I think recognize that there is a kind of advertising endemic advertising is a, still a really really successful business, and I think that the part of media that gets the least attention is the business to business sector, which you know. Um, connects, you know, to sort of a trade area. And the CEO, Jim Van High, was able to perceive that the amount of money that sort of Fortune 50 companies had at their disposal to influence influential people, whether they're lawmakers or lobbyists or influential people in Washington, it was disproportionate. So that if you could make more, if you could create scarcity in media, it was a really, really good model. You know, Axios's whole premise is that it's smart brevity. It's it's less, it's faster, and therefore it's more valuable. And that's also the same uh, promise they make to their advertisers. So if you think about that broadly, that's a pretty serious 180 to what was going on beforehand, which was just the everything circus to everyone pumped out through social media. And so we're going through a correction. And I think that we are beginning to sort of figure out what the next models of digital media look like. And I think it's it's subscription focused with advertising we see as a, a meaningful um revenue stream and probably you know you probably want a third stream whether that's experiential or events or something else and um, as these big companies were rising and then resizing there were other really really smart innovations in the space like the information a fantastic silicon valley based sure media company started by jessica lesson that has very high priced and incredibly worthwhile subscriptions i think it has like forty thousand or so i pay subscriptions that range in price from a few hundred to nearly a thousand dollars and i think everyone's a happy customer I, I certainly am to the athletic which uh, just sold it to the new york times for also for around 550 million maybe axios was 500 and 550 million dollars sold to the new york times and the new york and times had, still has dedicated sports reporters <laughs> yes uh, i imagine that the rubber is going to hit the road somewhere i don't know where but the athletic had a million paid subscribers the new york times is now the New York Times is a public company. I think it's worth about $6 billion, and it's uh, assessed by analysts on Wall Street according to its uh, you know top-line subscriber number and then I think average revenue per user. And The Athletic was – you know it was cheaper to buy The Athletic, I presume, than it was to, to pay and market to get the next million subscribers on their own. So I got to tell you, I still can't believe that John Kelly I knew is flexing average revenue per user. ARPU is not <laughs> something – 
you know, I spent a couple of years on Wall Street, but it just it goes to it shows the extent to which you you mopped up that experience at TBG. In the two minutes or so we have left, in this largely flattering profile of you in the New Yorker recently, it said Puck Puck, largely. which raised seven million dollars from TPG and Standard Industries, it's in its initial round of funding, is looking to close a Series B round by early next year. According to somebody close to it, Puck has been approached by about a dozen investors and hopes to raise between $15 million and $20 million. Do you have something like 30,000-plus subscribers now? I think that's what The New Yorker reported. So um, I... Uh... I, oh, I you're deflecting uh, to the New Yorker. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't disagree. I think. I think someone um, with knowledge of the situation probably confirmed <laughs> that on background. But we don't talk about our numbers publicly. Are you going to have to get back into fundraising mode? I mean, which is odd. We're talking about a lot of people are dealing with down rounds or even shuttering, as we were talking about Jim Hyland. And but you're going to look up against the wind and go out there with a pitch book again. Well, you know, we try not to comment on the finances of the company, but I'll just say that if you're in my position, you're always fundraising. That That's just the nature of um, of running a business, especially in media. And we have a very ambitious plan and we have big dreams for Puck. And, you know, I, I think that uh, there are a number of investors in the market who share our vision and, and recognize that we're, we're really only in the second or third inning of a, of a really colossal change in the industry and, and that what we're doing uh, will prove to be a, a pretty worthwhile piece of it. So I think that it's part of the job. In closing, John, am I imagining this a kind of a nod to the halcyon days of of uh, <laughs> of uh, Condé Nast largesse? Did you or did you not once in one of those sky lobby chats with me tell me that editorial assistants at Condé Nast used to get their eyebrow threading expensed? Oh, that's so funny. Um, there was an eyebrow lady who used to come by once a month. <laughs> it wasn't just the assistants. It, it, it was anyone who wanted it. And she would, this is when I worked there at um, four times square. The company is no longer there. And this woman would come to the 22nd floor and camp out in the photo director's office. And I, I used to have to, you know, I was sort of the um, the Henry Hill of uh, Vanity Fair back then. I was always running around <laughs> to people's offices, asking them for things, telling them great and needed them. For one reason or another, and I remember when on the days that she was in, I always stayed away because I knew that like the most senior executives at the place were all in there going in and out for their appointments, and I did not want to catch them in situ, uh, so to speak. So yes, uh, it, it, it was it was true, and and so much more was too. It, it was really an amazing place, and I'll just say that you know I think Condé Nast some parts of of that era have not aged well in the public consciousness. And I have to tell you, as someone who was there, it was really an unbelievable place to work. It was a place that put the creatives at the center of the equation. It was diverse. It was open-minded. It was absolutely, um, it was really wonderful in, in a lot of ways that are, that are underappreciated. John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Puck News. Sir, uh, consider yourself, if, if you so would like to slum it, a friend of the show. I'm so happy to finally have you on, and congrats on your success. Thanks, Robin. It's a real pleasure to be here. Full disclosure, stay with us. We wanted to close you out with a flashback to my 2020 interview with author Casey Sherman, whose bestseller, Hunting Whitey, chronicled the career rise and capture of notorious Boston gangster James Whitey Bulger. Bulger's name was back in the news recently as the Justice Department released a report on the inmate's 2018 murder in a U.S. penitentiary. 
Casey, when did Whitey Bulger break bad? Again, he gets out of prison in 1965, and we do know about the gang wars in, I guess, Southie and across other parts of Boston, the Winter Hill Gang and everything that happened in the 1960s and 1970s. When did this escalate from truck hijacking and uh, loan sharking and bookmaking and, uh, you know, protection rackets to, to outright murder? Well, you know, when, when the when the you know the big money increased, I guess you could say. And again, Bulger was trying to eradicate any perceived enemies because he was trying to uh, establish his own seat of power. And La Cosa Nostra, the mafia in Boston, they didn't care uh, what Bulger was doing as long as Bulger was cannibalizing other Irish gangs. And the mafia at the time, they didn't want to get their hands dirty anymore. You know, they were growing into more of kind of a legitimate organized crime outfit, at least in Boston. So the Irish gangs were still, you know, brutal enough to um, undertake these uh, deadly operations by killing people that either the mafia wanted rubbed out or Bulger wanted rubbed out for, you know, a couple of reasons. You know, one was that they may have uh, learned about Bulger's relationship with the FBI, and Bulger had to uh, protect that at all costs. As I said, the other reason was Bulger was consolidating power and trying to build up his own small army in a very small, tight-knit neighborhood of South Boston. So explain to me, if, is this kind of a subcontracting relationship with the, with the big cheese, the Italian crime families that just happen to be based in, in Providence? Again, it's so strange to me because you read so much about New York being split up in a certain way between Brooklyn, you know, New Jersey, the stuff right. across the Hudson River, Philadelphia, if you see the Irishman, Detroit, Kansas City, if you see Casino. I, I still cannot believe that the Italian mafia in Providence would be content to leave some of these pickings to uh, Irishmen from South Boston. Well, they do the jobs that the Italian uh, mobsters didn't want to do anymore. You know, they were they were more brutal. And I think you see that in almost every wave of immigrant, you know, street gang, um, you know, the First, uh, it's funny. I mean, it really comes full circle. The first uh, noted gangsters in American history were the Irish gangsters and the Jewish gangsters. And, sure. you know, you know, ultimately, the Irish went into politics and civil service. Uh, the Jewish gangsters went into law and uh, medical uh, medical professions. And that gave way for the Italians to fill that void. And later, then you've got, you know, obviously the, the Mexican gangs and the Guatemalan gangs. But, you know, there were pockets of Irish gangs that never elevated themselves. And that was surely the case in South Boston, which, you know, every family had, if there was a family of three brothers, one was a cop, the other was a priest, the other was a criminal. You know, he had a spat. And I think the first person on the record that he killed, if I'm not incorrect, was accidentally the wrong guy. Donnie McGonagall was a, a, a law-fearing, law-abiding, innocent person who just happened to be the brother of a guy that Whitey Bulger didn't like from a bar, from the mob scene. I, I did see that Bulger executed his brother Donald in a case of mistaken identity. He kept stirring up everything with his mouth, so Jimmy decided to kill him. Jimmy shot him right between the eyes, only it wasn't Polly, it was Donald. Mm -hmm. And Billy... Apparently, like it was said that don't worry about it. This guy wasn't healthy in any way. He smoked. He would have gotten lung cancer. Is that, I, I guess, was that his first kill? That was his first kill that, that we know of that's kind of on the record. And again, you know, when you're talking about Irish gangs in Boston in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you're also talking about a lot of collateral damage. There were a lot of different guys that uh, uh, dropped dead because they were either in the wrong place at the wrong time or they were mistaken for somebody else. Now, the McGonagall brothers are interesting because one of the McGonagall brothers uh, was uh, married to Whitey Bulger's future girlfriend, 
Catherine Gregg. So Catherine Gregg, you know, understood how bad Whitey Bulger was, yet still uh, wanted to be by his side and wanted to take a 16-year odyssey with this person that she knew had committed murder, committed murder to people that were close to her. I'm going to get to that because it's so haunting and I have so many questions about her. Full disclosure, this is Robin Farzad. You are listening to Casey Sherman, co-author of a book that I really enjoyed. I read it twice, Hunting Whitey, the inside story of the capture and killing of America's most wanted crime boss. Has it already been adapted for a movie? No, we're working on that right now. I mean, we've been very lucky in our career that, uh, you know, any time we get into a project like this, Hollywood uh, comes calling. And that's Patriot's Day, The Finest Hours, now Animal with 20th Century Fox. So we're working uh, on a limited series because it's it's too much information and too many great uh, scenes to be you know tied up in a in a ninety minute bow. So we we really need to uh, take a look at you know Whitey Bulger's life as a criminal, but also the FBI uh, fugitive hunters that have their own great stories to tell and their stories about perseverance, how they you know worked through a lot of down years where uh, you know their confidence was shaken, their uh, uh, reputations were besmirched and uh, you know finally it took a female FBI agent to come in and look at the landscape and say okay we're going to go hunt down Bigfoot and that's kind of how they referred to Whitey Bulger he was a he was a myth he was an apparition he was Kaiser Soze from the usual suspects oh, yeah. you know he was, he, was the, he was the ghost and uh, and she put together a fugitive team and a strategy which was brilliant that ultimately led to the capture of at that point America's number one Fugitive, Whitey Bulger. So, help me understand. We did, you did you did kind of delineate for us that uh, Boston and Southie were largely left to the Irish Americans by the Italians in Providence, but Whitey Bulger's sidekick, his enforcer, is Steve the Rifleman Flemmy, who was, I believe, nominally Italian American. Or yeah, Steve he was uh, half was, Irish. He was he was half Irish, half Italian. Um, the La Cosa Nostra tried to recruit him and tried to induct him into um, the mafia, but he refused to do it because he knew he'd have his hands tied if he was, you know, in the so-called outfit, and he could never get out and he could never operate independently. And he was making, you know, more money working side by side with Whitey Bulger uh, than he would be as a, as a soldier under the auspices of the Providence Mafia or the Satellite Mafia in the north end of Boston. You know, Stevie was uh, an independent contractor, as was Whitey Bulger. There's a whole other level of sociopathy and psychopathy. When I look at uh, Steve Fleming, and I'm really haunted by this, and especially the treatment that they gave him in the, in the movie Black Mass, Almost like a sympathetic figure, but this is a man who, there are some pictures of him in the 1970s. He's kind of a striking guy. He cuts a swath, you know, dark and handsome and has him photoed with his beautiful girlfriend at the time, Deborah Davis. Yep. And it turns out that his, um, it's, it's even hard to bring up, uh, his common law stepdaughter, Deborah Hussey, he had molested her and helped dismember both of them. That's right. And actually talking about these in court, my heart just bleeds for the families out there that are finally getting some modicum of of reconciliation and, and, and airing of this. How are people like this? Like I, I can almost understand if if Whitey Bulger, they did experiments on him and they fed him LSD in the 1950s and he was absolutely criminally insane and psychopathic and potentially schizophrenic. But how could a guy who's so functioning and gets up on the stand like Steve Fleming and his enforcer says, my relationship with Whitey with James was was strictly business. But if he tells you turn around and kill 
your stepdaughter, dismember them and, and actually, you know, bury them in this house that they called the Haunty. I, I, I really can't get my head around that. Well, Robin, you mentioned, uh, you know, Stevie Fleming's portrayal in Black Mass, and he was kind of a sympathetic and sloth-like figure, which was absolutely the antithesis of who Stevie Flemmy is. Stevie Flemmy is a very dangerous individual, an individual that even Whitey Bulger had admitted that he was uh, a little scared of because you just did not know what Stevie Flemmy was going to do. Stevie Flemmy grew up, he went into the Marines, he, they called him the Rifleman because he was uh, pretty adept at uh, weaponry in the uh, U.S. military, but he also had a brother, Jimmy the Bear Flemmy, who was... Uh, who. He, he aspired to be uh, the number one hitman in Boston. So you've got two psychotic brothers that have no uh, qualms about killing, no qualms about raping. You mentioned uh, Deborah Hussey, who was, again, Stevie Flemmy's common law stepdaughter. And remember, uh, if you read the book, um, Stevie Flemmy took her uh, shopping right before he knew that he was going to kill her. Um, so, I mean, that takes a, another level of psychopath to really try to try to understand somebody like that. I've tried to understand Stevie Flemmy, and, uh, and, and, and I can't come up with those, those appropriate answers. And I'm almost glad I can't because that is a very uh, troubled mind and somebody that would kill you in a, in a blink of an eye. Did you reach out to him? I mean, he got the he 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 was late to kind of get the tip off in the mid '90s when the feds got serious about this pursuit and they brought him in and they've since been milking him on the witness stand. I think he has life in prison. He's not going to get out, but he could testify to maybe improve his conditions in prison. Yeah, he can testify, but you know he cannot uh, cooperate with uh, interview requests or anything uh, like that. And you know, Stevie, even though he got late word that the uh, indictments were coming down, Bulger had been telling him for years, "You need your getaway plan." And Stevie just kind of shook his shoulders and uh, shook his head and said, oh, "No, I'm going to be fine. We've got informants in the FBI. We've got uh, corrupt state police uh, officials that they work with." So he thought that he was well insulated and. In- well protected, but that clearly didn't happen. You know, Bulger is the only one who could see the forest for the trees and understood that he had to uh, build this plan of escape over several years and uh, eventually launch it, which he did. So, Casey, work the parallel track with me here is while they're getting into all this murder and mayhem and shooting people and dismembering people and blowing up things and, you know, the rifleman follows in the car with the gun and, and all of this stuff that happens across Boston and the Burbs uh, in the early to mid-70s, they also have this agreement that struck with their FBI handler, John Connolly, who's now in prison. And I guess he made the approach, will you explain this to me through knowing the Bulgers, having grown up in Southie himself, he felt like, you know, we are cut from the same cloth, that I'm going to make you an extraordinary offer, that if you give me some information, I will also feed you information I will give you some degree of salutary neglect. I'll look the other way while you do your your hustling. I mean, never I, I never got any indication that he said you have a license to murder people, even though he tipped them off to who the informants were. So it's kind of, yeah, you kind of can murder them. But walk me back through that, you know, overture, how that sure. happened, when that first happened, when this guy became an informant for a living. Well, uh, you know, John Connolly was was very close to uh, Billy Bulger, the uh, the politician uh, brother of Whitey Bulger, and it was Billy. Billy Bulger that really uh, uh, got John Connolly his job with the FBI. And there was a bit of a 
quid pro quo there because, you know, uh, Billy Bulger told John Connolly, look, keep a lookout on my brother and keep him out of trouble. Now, you know, Billy Bulger didn't say, uh, you know, let my brother, um, you know, commit crimes. But, um, you know, there, there was something unsaid there that, you know, spoke volumes. And John Connolly built this relationship with Whitey Bulger and was really in awe of Whitey Bulger. I mean, he, you know, Bulger was John Connolly's hero. And John Connolly protected Whitey Bulger, you know, for years and years and years, and then brought in more FBI agents that were ultimately um, co-opted and co- uh, coerced by Bulger. So John Connolly also, uh, again, to your point, he was the guy that, and it was such a sick thing, Robin, because somebody that felt the heat of what Bulger, the first thing that they would do is either go to the state police or the FBI, and they would look for protection. But they were looking in the direction of somebody that was going to reach out to Bulger and say, okay, this guy is going to be a problem. It's probably good to take him out or take care of him. So, you know, John Connolly was actually setting up um, you know, men for, for murder. And that's why he's in prison uh, for the rest of his life in Florida right now. So I can understand, having covered the cocaine wars in, in Miami in the late 70s and the early 80s, how suddenly homicide and Miami becoming the murder capital of, of I guess, the Western Hemisphere becomes front and center. So if you're a detective, you can kind of justify in your head, I will look the other way if some pot dealers or if some smaller time people who are not cold-blooded killers feed me quality information so I can nab. There's no possible way that we can get everybody in jail right now. And I can almost see if Connolly made that agreement in his own head that, listen, these guys are are hustlers, they're larceny people, they're robbers, they're, they're bookmaking people. There's going to be a symbiotic relationship, and I trust that people aren't going to get killed on account of this relationship. When was that deal struck? Uh, well, uh, again, depending on who you talk to, that deal was struck in the early uh, 1970s when John Connolly, um, you know, made his way back to Boston as an FBI agent and uh, opened his first file, um, informant file, top echelon informant file with uh, Whitey Bulger. What does it mean to be a top echelon informant exactly? Uh, that means that the information and intel that you are providing is um, a cut above all the rest and that there are certain um, freedoms that a top echelon informant will receive because he's either sitting at, you know, next to the throne of the, you know, the biggest organized crime um, syndicate in, in a city or, uh, you know, they're, they're very close to it. And that's what, you know, Whitey Bulger at least was perceived to be in the 1970s. And Bulger, um, you know, was giving information uh, to the FBI about the uh, organized crime unit in the North End, which was the kind of the, the junior league mafia group from, uh, as opposed to Providence, Rhode Island. And Bulger's information actually allowed uh, the FBI to plant uh, bugs in the headquarters of the underboss of the New England mob, uh, Gennaro and Julo, which ultimately led to Gennaro and Julo's arrest, an arrest that was made by John Connolly, the biggest uh, caller in his entire career. So, you know, Bulger was very handy and uh, uh, um, very important for somebody like John Connolly for his own career. And Bulger, use them just as the FBI used him. You were listening to some of my 2020 interview with Casey Sherman, co-author of the bestseller Hunting Whitey, the inside story of the capture and killing of America's most wanted crime boss. Catch the whole episode wherever you get your pods. 
We called it the long con of Whitey Bulger. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is fulldradio.com. You can also rate and recommend us kindly. Follow along on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. And catch me every week on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. Thank you.